The following podcast contains some technical difficulties. Hopefully it won't deter your enjoyment of this episode. I doubt it will, but I wanted to give you a heads up anyway. So if you're wondering why Ray and Jackie sound like they're in a tin can for the first two minutes, that's why. Okay, thanks. Enjoy the episode. Hey y'all, producer Drew here. We are taking Ray into the exhibition 30 Americans for the very first time. So uh, let's see how it goes. And we're walking. You know, it's one thing when you see see these depictions of, of of hair, but the descriptions about these, wow, post-mortem. But you know, this gigantic portrait over here, this is, if this doesn't pull you in, just the colors of that. I love the fact that <clears throat> we have so much mixed medium here between, you know, sculpture or really repurposed as art. I, I gotta see this carpet now. What is, what is this? I mean, it looks like it came out of my apartment, honestly. This gives me flashbacks. I used to, I used to do floor covering briefly and uh, you'd pull carpet like this, you know, to be replaced, usually like in apartments and that sort of thing. and. Even then, I you know you can't help but see a stain and wonder what the what the story was behind it. Was it a kid that was playing and knocked over a coffee cup? Was that a bad morning? You know, and you're trying to drink your coffee and you trip over the dog, or you know, I, probably on the floor you 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 would you would certainly notice the stain, but having it up on the wall forces you to focus on the stain. And so much of our history is just that, it's stains. And we're sort of left to try to piece together really what was the origin? Why, how did this happen? If we're brave enough to ask that question. Because obviously when you pull up the carpet, God only knows what you see underneath it. Welcome to Binder. I'm Ray McManus. All right, I'm here with Jackie Adams, Director of Art and Learning here at the Columbia Museum of Art. First of all, it's good to see you. Yeah, likewise. We're going to talk a little bit about 30 Americans, a new exhibit here. Tell us a little bit about what sort of spawned this and maybe a little bit of uh, insight, if you will, on the exhibit itself and uh, what we can look forward to. Sure. The show was created from a set of collectors, the Rubels, and they collected contemporary black art. They started to collect a group of artists. It happened to round out to be 31 because the one extra person got in at the very tail end of the show idea, but they ended up calling it 30 Americans. It's thinking about artists that come from all different backgrounds, experiences, and we're all sort of under this collective umbrella of what it means to be an American. How does an exhibit like this come into fruition? This was a, a traveling yeah. sort of exhibit. So how did that get here to the Columbia Museum of Art? This is definitely one of the most popular questions that we get as a museum. There's a lot of work that goes into these exhibitions. So we actually start about three years out. 
So the show was, I guess, technically in its seventh year of touring. And it was about that time that we started to look at this exhibition and consider it for our museum. So every department sort of comes together and thinks about how can this show be a success? We're all looking at it. And we really thought that this exhibition had the immense potential to really inspire people. We also think it's very reflective of our own demographic community in Colombia. Colombia is about 40% African-American. And so we think shows like this are extremely relevant from a demographic standpoint too. In preparation for this show, we designed community discussion groups and we pulled together four different ones and we showed them certain pieces of artwork. We didn't want to give them any information about the work. We just really wanted the art to be center. Part of that is that I needed people to bring their lived experiences to the art so we can have a conversation of interpretation because looking at art is definitely not a siloed, one-sided experience. So people did that. They did that very generously, actually. And there was one woman in particular, Janie Harriet from the South Carolina African-American Heritage Commission, who spoke up very boldly. I was really just really impressed with what she had to offer. And I invited her to come to the museum and share a little bit more of her own lived experiences. I just want to welcome you, Janie Harriet, to the Columbia Museum of Art, first of all. It's a pleasure to have you back with us. Well, thank you. I am honored that you want to listen to what I had to say. I tell people all the time, I have eight siblings and they have various talents. Mine is talking. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have a beautiful way of giving some additional details to those stories. And I hope our listeners just enjoy where we're going to go with some of that today. Can you tell us a little bit, I'm just curious about the South Carolina African American Heritage Commission and just the work that you do through that organization. Okay. The South Carolina African American Heritage Commission was created in 1993 by the South Carolina General Assembly because there was not much being done to preserve the rich experiences of African Americans in the state of South Carolina. Before that, I had nothing to do with history. I was a business teacher. I had my own business. I had lived in New Jersey for 18 years, had come back to South Carolina, and was trying to keep Walmart from buying my high school. (laughs) And so I got a call to come to a meeting, and that's where we discuss having a statewide African-American preservation organization. And based on some conversations with people in that room who I had never met before, we decided that this need to be a legislatively created body because it would give it the oomph or the whatever it needed to move forward. So there were 15 of us originally in that room who were appointed by Governor Carol Campbell, and I have served for 28 years. Oh, wow. That's wonderful. That is very commendable. Well, thank you. The fact that you've mixed some civic social justice practice with thinking about how to protect your communities is very important. And we talked a little bit about that in the exhibition. We were looking at the work of Xaviera Simmons. This reminds me actually of growing up because I grew up in a neighborhood where my family was a family of six kids. Next door was a family of six kids. And across the street was a family of five kids. 
how it reminded you and brought back some of those memories of where your family was raised. And we talked a little bit about how that sort of generational passing on of property is, right. is very important. Can you expand on that a little bit? Well, first thing is, it is well known that in this country, land is part of the beginning of wealth. And many African-Americans have never had that opportunity to acquire land. But those families who could, buying a piece of land and putting a house on it and maintaining it forever as a part of their family legacy is very important. This looks like a house that we will be trying to preserve because there's so many communities, specifically black communities, that have what were nice homes that need restoration. I mean, even in my community, there's not as much emphasis put on keeping the community alive. Luckily, there's some descendants of original owners, like on my street, all the houses on my street, descendants of the people who built those houses live in those houses. So I was born in Wilmington, North Carolina. My father worked at the shipyard in Wilmington during the war. The whole time they were there, they were saving their money to build a house in Bishopville, South Carolina. So when the war was over, we moved back to South Carolina into this house that my parents owned. Nobody had ever lived in it before. And I am one of those people who proud to say that all of my life, there has been a homestead and I have lived in a place owned by my parents. So owning land is very important to African-Americans. It's kind of where we are rooted and grounded. Mm -hmm. That makes me think about, you know, the American dream mm -hmm. and what that American dream means and who has afforded that American dream and how that shifts and changes throughout generations and throughout the decades. Right. When we were walking through the galleries, you had made a comment that you were really struck by the title of this exhibition, 30 Americans, as opposed to being called 30 African-Americans. What were your thoughts around that and how did that strike you? Well, I think that too often, although I'm proud of the term African-American, and someone said to me one time, you're not from Africa. Why do you call yourself African-American? And this being a white person, I want to really slap them. <laughs> but I think the fact is I know nothing about Africa. I've never been to Africa. I'm proud of the lineage that I have back to Africa. But I am an American. And I think sometimes white people use that distinction to minimize us. So I was happy that you saw this as an opportunity to just, to just say, this is work by 30 Americans, people who live in this country may have never been to Africa, but they are Americans. They were born here. They were raised here. This is their home. I love hearing that because we all, I think, depending on where you sort of originated in this country, like I have an immigrant story, you grapple with different identities of what it means to be American. And because it's so broad, we all try to like find our place in this American story. Like, who am I and who am I in this American landscape? When we were going through the exhibition, another thing that you sort of touched on that struck me was the representation 
of black individuals in this exhibition. You know, there is a boldness, a beauty, a braveness. And you, you made a comment around, I am who I am. And that's who I am. Exactly. You know, I have had such varied experiences as an African-American female. This is who I am. But it is also resented by a lot of people. It is envied by some people. I mean, I can't do anything about that. But I'm who I am. I said to someone once, he said to me, well, Janie, you know what? You need to change so you can get along with people. I said, you know what? I'm too old to change. I was probably (laughs) in my 50s then. But the fact is, why should I change to get along with somebody else? Why can't we just accept people for who they are? And we work together to mitigate those places where we have differences, not make me change to suit you. I sometimes think that white people think that we need to be them, and if we don't act like them, then we are less than. And this is coming from a very sore place right now. So we are who we are. Accept us, we're brilliant. We are beautiful. We are talented. We offer a lot to this country. Why do we have to be different? Janie has served with the South Carolina African American Heritage Commission since 1993. She's been honored with countless awards and titles over her extensive career, but has been quoted as saying her proudest title is Aunt Janie, given to her by her 172 nieces, nephews, grand and great nieces and nephews. Coming up next, I visit with my cousin. Are you crying right now, Ray? No, I'm not crying. You're crying. Ashley M. Jones. After this. Hey, y'all. You know who it is. Just thought you might like to know there's more coming soon. You know. More? What? You keep acting like you don't know what I mean. Come on. I'm talking about more exhibitions, more classes, more programs, more concerts, more tours, more art, more podcasts. There's always more at the CMA. See? More. And members get even more than that. More mission, more parties, more benefits than I can name in this ad. In fact, it might be easier if you just go see for yourself. Because if I have to list how much more there is, we'll be here all day. You can see more for yourself on our website, www.columbiamuseum.org. And now, for more of the show. Mary Don't You Weep or Mary Turner Resurrected. When Mary Turner threatened to press charges for the wrongful lynching of her husband, in Brooks County, Georgia, on May 19, 1918. She was strung upside down, her clothes were burned off, and her unborn baby was cut from her womb and stomped to death. Turner was shot repeatedly, and she and her baby were buried close by their murder site. Like all resurrections, it began with blood, dirt, unending light. The Georgia moss punctuated by camellias, 
their white hurt stretching across Brooks County. No blight to stain their leaves, just the ash falling bloody from Mary's emblazoned womb. Her baby, a fire, its single soft cry still igniting the air. Could it be that even this baby, even this one-breathed angel was crucified to save us all? Maybe. Maybe Mary and her baby flew up from death in sweaty Georgia, her shallow grave shaken loose, finally free, resurrected. It turns out all along hell was earth. What else could she name that rock covered in leaf and loam, not loving, not hopeful, and most certainly not home? My name is Ashley M. Jones, and I'm the Poet Laureate of the state of Alabama. I'm also the author of Reparations Now, which is out from Hub City Press. A book that I can't encourage readers enough they need to read because it is an absolutely stunning and brilliant book. And we'll, we'll certainly talk about some of that. And we're going to talk a little bit about 30 Americans, the exhibit here at the Columbia Museum of Art. But we're also going to talk, and I think it'd be a nice way to, to start off by uh, congratulating you on Poet Laureate of Alabama. I don't think our listeners understand perhaps the significance of your appointment in this. The first non-white Poet Laureate of Alabama, Alla freaking Bama. Of course, I am a fan of yours. You know, we affectionately call each other cousins and it's something that I do truly feel about you. I feel like we're related. I feel like there's a kindred connection. So knowing what you're going to bring to this position, but also knowing the significance of the appointment in this position has me just thrilled to death. Talk a little bit about the experience of that, you know, being appointed into this position Maybe talk a little bit about the Magic City Poetry Festival that you, you know, started there and just Birmingham in general and, and all the cool stuff you're doing. I will try to get to all of that. Um, those of you who know my cousin Ray know that he can say a lot of things at once. <laughs> <laughs> but we love that. We love that about Ray. But yeah, I am really thrilled to be Alabama's Poet Laureate. I mean, this was a dream of mine for a while. You know, as you know, I'm a very like planning type A kind of person. So mm -hmm. as a child, I started planning what I wanted my life to be. And my first big goal was to win a Nobel Prize. Very humble and small goal for like a right. five year old. <laughs> but it was because I, I learned that Toni Morrison won a Nobel Prize for her work. And I said, ooh, I want to be a writer. So obviously I have to win a Nobel Prize like Toni Morrison. So I started creating this list and eventually the list like got more reasonable, you know, and, you know, I put things in the correct order. So eventually on the list was to serve as my state's poet laureate. Now, I did not know that I would be the first person of color to serve. And I did not know that historic moment would happen after 91 years because the position was started in 1930. And I've been thinking about it a lot and saying it a lot because I really do think it's important for me as the new Poet Laureate to acknowledge that this has taken almost a century for someone, not even just the first Black. A lot of people have been introducing me as the first Black, which I am, but I'm also the first person who is not white. 
Let that just sit in your mind for a second. It's been almost a century. That's 100 years almost. But to me, that illustrates what we're dealing with as a country. You know, it's not really fair, I think, to say, oh, it's just because you're in Alabama. I'm sure we could name plenty of states who have not had adequate representation across all ethnicities, you know, as their poet laureate. It really shows that these progress narratives that we hold on to so dearly, they're not actually reality. That's something that I'm bringing into the position, that knowledge and the desire to really keep saying the thing. I'm really not here to say, oh, I did it. Now it's all over. Like, no, even in my selection, the fact that it's me that was you know, selected, there's still some issue in that. I am someone, as you know, who works way too hard. I have a really long resume, like, you know, whatever. I've jumped through all these hoops. Like if we are successful in, in making things equitable, I would love for there to be a day when someone can just be and not like almost kill themselves doing stuff. And still feel that they are able to walk into a poet laureate space as a person of color. You know, there should not be this expectation that you have to be the exceptional, you know, one. So anyway, this is a long answer to a long question. Right. Yeah, I, I totally set that up for that. And you're exactly right. It's a bad habit of mine when I, I think and talk at the same time. But when I heard the news and, and of course, I think I echo what hundreds and thousands of folks have been on social media and certainly the interviews that have come out since then that we're just we're so proud and just so delighted, not just for the significance of being the first person of color to be in this position, but that it's Ashley M. Jones in this position. You are so loved and so appreciated for your genuine approach to not just poetry and not just to art, but being able to talk about and and express the issues. Because I think so often people kind of think they understand how things are. Um, and certainly the white community does a lot of that to think, you know, well, it wasn't like that when I grew up or we didn't know any better. And it's like, look, nobody's calling you out for not knowing any better then, but you should be knowing better now. And that is something that comes out a lot in your work without you calling people out, like pointing out, like, this is what's happening now. The exhibit that we have right now with 30 Americans, one of the things that I found fascinating, just beyond the pieces themselves, but you know, when you made the point of saying, you know, look, almost a century, there has not been a person of color in this position. When you look at the total canon of art, the lack of representation, right, of African-Americans beyond people looking back at maybe slave art or, you know, folk art, but actually seeing them as true contemporary artists and have left an indelible mark on contemporary art as we see it today. Were there some images that you saw that that really kind of stood out to you or you felt like sort of exemplified the value and the expression of why we need to be paying more attention to and celebrating more black artists? Yeah, shout out to you, Ray, for that incredible segue into the 30 of (laughs) May. Yeah, I loved looking at the the 30 Americans exhibit and something that really stuck out to me, actually, looking at some of the photographs of black people just being alive. Like there's this one image of two black people with these incredible afros, which like we love, (laughs) we love an afro. But it made me think about a part of 
reparations that I think people don't quite always think about, which is just the ability for black people to exist and not be tokenized, commodified, to be able to be an artist and not have to carry this burden of you're our black one. So we're going to put all of the stuff on you. You have to answer every question about your whole race. You are the one who's going to let us get our diversity and inclusion grant. You're the one who has to teach us about our own history, which Mm -hmm. is always wild to me. It's like, well, I don't, I don't know why it's my job to tell you what your people did because it's your people. Like, (laughs) you know, (laughs) so yeah. So just looking at those images just made me kind of think, wow, I really hope that a part of the reparations process, whenever it begins includes allowing black people to exist peacefully and be left alone. You know, let us just have our art making, our food making, our music making, our love making, whatever it is, allow us to have it without putting your hands all inside of it. You're exactly right. When will the reparation start? Which now you have made a lovely segue because I want to talk about this book. We've heard the term reparation for, I don't know, quite some time. And I know, I remember even as a kid hearing about it. And of course, naturally, where do you hear from? You hear from other white people and they've heard it from a very oversimplified way of thinking of it as we're all going to have to start writing checks. And I think for the longest time, I probably even thought that that's exactly what that term meant. I don't think it really dawned on me until I read your book because It is a complex issue, and yet you so eloquently are able to go into so many different nuances, whether it's music or, gosh, some of the, and and I'm going to try not to get emotional when I talk about it, but some of the most touching parts to me were when you write about your dad and lineage and cultural lineage and finding the ways to repair a lot that has been broken. And it's a monumental task for a poet to take. If you could, maybe talk a little bit about constructing the poems for this book. I think a lot of folks don't realize how books of poetry happen. And then the last thing I'm going to ask is, you know, what's next? Because, good God, this one's a gut punch and I love it. Okay, I'm writing down all these questions. Uh, (laughs) Looking at my notes. Ray. (laughs) You were talking a while ago about um, the idea of reparations and how it sort of has gotten misconstrued over time. And I do think that's such an interesting concept because it goes back to me to that idea of privilege and um, misrepresentation, misperception. So for anyone to look at the idea of reparations for black people and see handout, that means that you're looking at a black person and seeing them as in need unfairly already. And even if you don't know that that's what you're thinking, that's what you're thinking. Now, why are you thinking that? We can go on for hours about, you know, how, why that is, but it's down to that level. Like that's what people don't understand. It's, it's of course, as big as please don't murder me in the street with your knee on my neck, Mr. Mm -hmm. Police officer. But it's also, can I please walk down a street and you don't cross to the other side? Can I walk past your, your purse and you not start clutching it? Can I enter a room 
as a beautiful black woman with beautiful black hair and you not start making a weird like, oh my gosh, it's so exotic. It's so this. Can I touch? <laughs> Can I touch it? <laughs> no, like <laughs> you can't. Anyway, I wanted to just say that, you know, that that reparations is bigger than, of course, what everybody has been told. And so then to your next question, going down my list, <laughs> you asked, how did the work come together? So I can't speak for every poet. I'm sure there's some poets out there who sit down with an idea and execute that idea. But that is not what I do. I am very committed to listening to the spirit is what I call it. That brings me the poetry which is, I know, very like new agey, woo woo, whatever, uh, but I'm a poet. I'm an artist. You get to do that. That's what we, yeah, that's what we do. So I simply listen to whatever it is that I'm obsessed with, whatever ideas are coming into my mind, because usually my mind or the spirit or whatever knows what it's doing. I'm just here to type, you know, black people are always on my mind. I'm black. I love black people, you know? So I was thinking about, um, you know, things that had happened to me as I've gotten older, and especially now that I'm a poet in the world, reading poems that are, you know, politically charged, things happen to me. People say things to me. So, of course, I have to process them. The way that I process is through writing. Then also just all these things that have been happening through the last few years, it's impossible for me not to ruminate on them. Like when Stefan Clark was murdered, that was hard for me to comprehend, you know. And around the time that I learned about him, actually, is when I learned more about Mary Turner. And I, those two poems, uh, Mary Turner and Stefan Clark, are ones that I think consistently people are impacted by, not only because it's history that maybe they have not been taught, but because of the absolute terror of what they did to both of those people. I yes. mean, but especially Mary Turner, the depravity is unfathomable, truly. It was difficult, you know, for me to really understand that. And to know that that woman could have been me, like in all these situations, it could have been me, you know? Yeah. So I took it to the page and, um, you know, after a while, after two and a half, three years of writing these poems about these issues, I sort of look at what I have and I looked at the, the work and I said, well, okay, this is saying something, you know, I couldn't really come up with a title. Usually that's the last thing that happens for me is the title. And so I happened to write the title poem sort of late in the process and it's um, titled Reparations Now, Reparations Tomorrow, Reparations Forever. And after I wrote that poem, I said, well, wait a minute. Maybe this is what this whole book is about. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it all kind of happens organically. And I really think for me, the reason that it can happen without a lot of strife, I'll say it that way, because I erase the ego and I simply allow the work to do its work. Ashley is the Poet Laureate of the state of Alabama. If I sat here and named all of her achievements, we'd be here all day. But please, check out her latest book, Reparations Now, from Hub City Press, and even more at her website, ashleymjonespoetry.com. You know, the story of America has not been written yet. I think the biggest thing that I've taken from this exhibit and from the interviews and my discussion with Ashley and thinking about her book in particular, it reminds me that too often we think about experience in America as being 
an isolated or insular thing that only happens for black America or white America. And what we forget about is that we're all America, brown, white, immigrant, native. It's all telling a part of the story of America. And so as we think about art in particular, and we think about life in general, it's important that we always remember that and the basis of all of this is the human experience. And we are all human. And here, we're all America. You've been listening to Binder, a production of Columbia Museum of Art. Today's episode was hosted by me, Ray McManus, produced and edited by Drew Barron. And welcome back to Drew and Ray Try to Get Through Two Sentences. <laughs> With special assistance from Joel Ryan Cook. For more information about Binder, CMA exhibitions, and programs, please visit our website at www.columbiamuseum.org. Hey y'all, producer Drew here. Popping in at the end just to let you know we'll be releasing a few bonus episodes with the full interviews from today's guests over the next few weeks. So if you enjoyed what you heard today, be sure to check those out. And be on the lookout next month for a brand new episode of the Binder Podcast. What's the easiest way to make sure you don't miss any of this? You see that little subscribe button? The one on the app you're using to listen to this right now? Go ahead and press it. Go on. Until next time, thanks for listening.